Tonight's reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your, from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is God's word. Good evening. Oh, it is lovely to be back with the protective screen uh, to protect you from my breath and me from anything you choose to throw during the sermon. I don't know, some of you are wont to. Usually, looking out while preaching, I can see um, the smiles, the frowns, or the nodding dog. Uh, obviously, I can't see much of that tonight, so do feel free to give it a big thumbs up if you in, enjoy what God has to say. Uh, yeah, thumbs up. That's what we like to see. Let's, uh, let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Do keep 1 Thessalonians 2 open. Great God in heaven, we want our lives to be useful to you and the kingdom of God. We want our lives to be a blessing to others. And so we pray that you would work this word down into our hearts for the good of others and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, I, you've entered the lottery of church and it's come up trumps for you this evening. You turn up at church and you get a sermon all about what a minister should be doing. Great, well, what on earth is the relevance of that, of all the evenings to come? I mean, what is the relevance of 1 Thessalonians 2 to most of us here? tells you how a faithful minister should behave. Well, 
tells you how to keep me in check, make sure I do my job properly. But actually, this is a hugely relevant passage to every single person sitting in this building right now. Because all Christians are ministers in God's church. Every single one of you is. Because God's Holy Spirit equips all of his people with gifts to serve his church. And the New Testament is full of commands to all of God's people to teach one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another. It's full of um, instructions like the Lord Jesus' final commission on earth, which was go and make disciples of all nations. All of you, go and make disciples of all people. That's God's command to God's church for all time. And so while the passage is undoubtedly helpful in showing what patterns of ministry to look for and to encourage and to hold church staff to account for, actually, one day, every single one of us will stand before God and we're given account for what we have done to make disciples. What we have done, in other words, to encourage those who are already Christians to keep going and what we have done to to seek to share the gospel with those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. We'll give an account to God for what we've done with the great commission that Jesus Christ entrusted to us in his final moments on earth. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, what Paul does is he lifts up for us a model of ministry and says, look, if you want to live a life that matters eternally, if you want to live a life that actually makes a difference, that leaves a legacy that will last for the ages, then then this this is the kind of stuff to be involved in. Now, we saw last week that uh, Paul was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks before uh, a wild mob drove him and Silas and Timothy out. And having heard from Timothy that the young church are standing firm, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Paul writes to them. He longs for this baby little church. Adam and Tase's baby over there, he longs for this little baby to, to grow healthy. And so he spends the first chapter encouraging them. Uh, we all need encouragement especially those who are young in the faith. All of us need encouragement. And now in chapter 2, he tells them all about what he did while he was in Thessalonica, what his ministry was like amongst them. Because the church will only grow mature and healthy if the ministry that's put into them, that feeds them, is mature, healthy ministry. You see, growing a spiritually mature Christian is not like giving somebody a vaccine. You know, one jab, you're fine for life. It's more like your need for for daily food. If physically you only ever take in greasy donners and turkey Twizzlers, you are not going to grow physically healthy. If that's been your lockdown diet, you need to change it or you're going to be in serious trouble. Spiritually, the same goes. Unless you take in healthy gospel ministry, you won't grow spiritually mature and rich, and fulfilled as Christ wants us to be, and useful to his world and his church. So chapter 1 told us about a model church. Chapter 2 tells us now about a model ministry. And what we'll see is that a ministry that grows healthy Christians, that grows healthy churches, is marked by pure motives, pure methods, and a pure message. Pure motives, pure methods, and a pure message. Firstly, pure motives. Look at verses 1 to 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. 
So Paul and Silas, they arrived in Thessalonica and their backs were still a mess of unhealed wounds after the illegal beating they'd received from the authorities in Philippi. Okay, but why bother telling us that, Paul? Well, he tells them that because, verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Paul's point is, look, I want you to know what my motives were for preaching the gospel to you. I didn't do it because of the perks, the kudos that it brought me. It got him rejection, hatred, beatings. He preached the gospel at personal cost, not for personal gain. Verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We weren't looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. His motive was certainly not greed, verse 5. Uh, verse 9 tells us, Paul and his team worked every spare hour they had and received financial support from the church at Philippi to make sure they didn't have to ask for a penny from the Thessalonians. He's not saying ministers shouldn't be paid. He was happy to take the money from the, the, the church in Philippi. But the principle that you'll learn again and again and again throughout the New Testament from Paul is you never make people pay for the privilege of hearing about the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Never. Giving, giving's a response that naturally bubbles up when, when you realize that the great God of heaven has given his own precious son so that we can be freely saved, our sins paid, and be given a share of his eternal inheritance in paradise. That's what prompts giving. So Paul's not prompted by financial greed, nor though is he prompted by a desire for popularity. We, we learn verse 5, use no flattery because he wasn't trying to get praise from men, verse 6. See, ministry for Paul is not about Paul. It's not about his need to, to make something of himself, uh, to live up to his early promise, his parents' dreams. It's not about his need to be needed by other people. It's not about his need for affirmation and popularity, to have a crowd in front of him. His motivation... His motivation, verse 4, was God. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. It's all about God. God has entrusted him with the gospel. And his greatest desire is, is just to please his heavenly father. In other words, Paul lived his whole life before the audience of one. That's where he's looking. And who cares about getting affirmation from other people? Who cares if other people love Paul's sermons when he's got a heavenly father, the creator of the galaxies, to please? I wonder if the same could be said from you and me. Now, most of us can't get rich from ministry, let's be honest. So greed is very unlikely to be a motivation for any of the service you do. You don't get paid an enormous amount for Sunday school. I've got to be honest. In fact, it's kind of about that much. Um, you don't do it for the money. But all of us have to beware that we don't serve out of selfish motives. The desire to serve to impress those one or two people whose opinion really matters to us. 
the enjoyment of influence over other people in our group, the putting of others in our debt, perhaps, or the feeling of significance, of importance, of worth that we get from being in ministry. I, I slightly think that you only really know if your ministry is, the, the things that you do are for God rather than people when it costs you to do them. Uh, how do you respond when you feel like you're just taken for granted by the families whose children you look after in Sunday school? How do you respond when it feels like you just get indifference or, or criticism from the small group you teach or the young student that you seek to meet up with to teach the gospel to? What about when uh, you try and tell friends, colleagues about Jesus and they laugh in your face or they slap you down as a bigot? You see, the only motivation that will really sustain us through all the ups and the downs is I'm doing it to please my heavenly father. Not to earn his approval, but to please him. Now, when I was a little kid, the best thing in the world was when my dad came to watch me play sport for the school. Now, in part, he was the only one there who wasn't laughing at my skinny little legs. But there was more to it than that. Because at that age, as a boy, your father's approval is kind of everything. And until peer groups take over, there was just nothing that mattered more to me. And I knew that he was totally for me, whether I played badly or whether I played well. He would always have a huge smile and a massive hug. He would always cheer when I did something right. And win or lose, he knew, I knew he loved me. And so I just wanted to do the best I could for him. I just wanted to please him. And living to please our Heavenly Father, living before that audience of one, is the most liberating and wonderful thing. He's better than any earthly father ever could be. And when you live for his smile, it sets you free from, from needing the approval of other people. When you... When you live or die according to how much others value you, it's just exhausting. When you live for the Father who's given his Son for you, you're free. So it's you free from, from the pressure to soft-pedal hard truths when you're trying to uh, help people grow as Christians because you're, you're worried how they might respond. They might not come back. You're free when you live for your Father's pleasure. Free to tell people the truth. So look up. Look up. See your heavenly father, the creator of the galaxies, looking down and smiling at you. Live for that. Live for that and you'll be free to actually serve others properly. Because when you don't need people, you can love them. And when you live for the pleasure of God, you can do that. You'll be free to be effective in helping others follow Jesus better. Free to, to tell others about Jesus, not living in fear that they might reject you or be rude to you. Free to do all things that bring pleasure to your Heavenly Father, knowing that his smile is better than anything in this world. Paul had pure motives. He also had pure methods. After the why, we get the how. And in summary, Paul says that when we're seeking to help someone grow as a follower of Jesus, we should care for them like good parents. Like good parents. Firstly, like a mother, verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Supposedly misogynistic Paul 
And he says, the model for my ministry is I'm like a mother. That's what real ministry looks like. Be like a mother. Verses 7 to 8, it's all about the way that uh, Paul and his missionary team cared for the baby believers like a nursing mother. When babies come into the world and when they're being nursed, they are basically just a raw bundle of need. That is it. And a nursing mother is defined by just the all-consuming nature of the gentle love she has to pour into that baby. And Paul says you've got to be like that to be a useful minister, to help other people grow as they follow Jesus. And his maternal ministry is really summed up in the, in the very memorable phrase in verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. They poured all they had and all they were into this little church. You see, to be a faithful Christian, to be one who helps other people follow Jesus more closely, well, it means investing everything you are and have into them. You've got to live your life for and in front of other people, is what he says here. We need that, because becoming a Christian doesn't just change what you do on a Sunday. You have to learn a whole new pattern of life. Following Jesus impacts what you do at work, what you do at home, same thing these days. What you do as you conduct relationships, how you spend your money, how you speak, what you watch, everything. Everything changes when you turn to follow Jesus. And so people need more than just somebody to explain the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, now get on with life. Now they, they need you to share life with them so they can learn the new pattern of life. True discipleship is life on life. And I think probably all of us would recognize the Christians who've had the greatest impact on us have been the ones who've let us into their homes, their lives. I remember when the, uh, the internship scheme at church was much smaller, we would meet for, for our training once a week around Richard Coke and the minister around his kitchen table. And uh, the reason he did that, well, in part, it meant he could get us to help look after the kids. But the, but the main reason he did it is he wanted us to see what life was like. If we, if we went for it and, and, and became ministers for, for the rest of our lives, he wanted us to see, look, this is what family life looks like when you're in ministry. He wanted to train us about more than just how to give a talk. He wanted to train us how to live life. And that's right. You can't do that to everybody. But in ones and twos, as we seek to share the gospel and as we seek to encourage others, we've got to teach what does it look like, what does it mean to follow Jesus in the sacred ordinariness of daily life? That's what Paul was doing. Teaching these young believers, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the sacred ordinariness of their daily lives? Like a mother, secondly, like a father. Now, verses 10 to 12 are really one long sentence. There's only one main verb. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Very interestingly, that to be a good father begins with being holy, righteous, and blameless. Why is that? Well, because if biblically fathers are to lead the family, the first way you lead is by setting a good example. You don't lead primarily by telling others what to do, but by calling them to follow where you've already been. 
So good fathers to be an example. But note also the individuality of the attention that Paul um, talks about in verse 11, each one of you. Now this is Paul who's got this absolutely restless ambition to travel around the known world, planting uh, mission-minded churches everywhere he could to send out people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ so that the millions who don't know Jesus around the Mediterranean can come to know the gospel. He's got this, this relentless vision to reach the millions and yet... And yet here is Paul saying, it is each one of you that I love and I serve and I comfort and I encourage. Every individual Christian has their own issues, their own sins to untangle, their own gifts to fan into flame. And so he encouraged, comforted and urged each precious convert to live lives worthy of God. Now, it's interesting, just as it was striking to hear Paul firstly say, look, I'm, I'm like a mother and so should you be. It's, it's also interesting that those who think the Bible advocates some sort of uh, ultra-traditional view of, uh, of the family, do you see what the father's role is here? Not just urging and encouraging, but comforting is part of a father's role. It's interesting actually how much emphasis there is in 1 Thessalonians on gentleness, on, on comforting and encouraging. Because following Jesus is just not easy. In some countries, it is a death sentence. We were praying for Alex in the Middle East. And where he is, it can be a death sentence for people. In others, it means you'll be trapped in poverty, Pakistan. In others, it means you'll never be allowed to go to university. It's true in many communist countries. Uh, You certainly won't be able to get very far in business. It's relatively easy here in London, but still many of us are misunderstood or laughed at or accused of being idiots or bigots. And we all feel that pressure to follow the the broad, easy road with everybody else rather than the narrow, steep one following Jesus. And so we all need encouragement if we're going to do that, especially when we're young. So here, the method of Paul really is parenting these people. That's what he says. Now, after a year of parenting two little boys, I am starting to grasp that this is quite a demanding pattern that Paul sets up here. Actually, it's frightening. It's all-consuming. You see, parenting is not some sort of detached professional relationship with clear boundaries. You can't ring-fence me-time when you have small children. It doesn't work like that. You can't diarize things neatly. Now, Daddy's got a busy week, so this week we're going to keep the potties and the puking and the tantrums to just an hour after lunch, okay? Doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. The pattern of discipleship Paul raises here is costly, enormously costly in in time and the emotional investment, but it is worth it. This is how healthy, mature Christians grow. This is how an eternal legacy is built. This is how we please God. Pure motives, pure method, and finally, a pure message. Lastly, we see a model ministry proclaims the pure message. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, in one sense, these these verses are a bit of an aside. As Paul turns from a focus on what his ministry has been amongst them to to think about how they received what he said. But as he does so, we see the what, the content of Paul's ministry. 
And it was the pure message of the gospel. It was the word of God that he preached. His ministry involved putting this word in those people. Now put yourself in Paul's sandals as he stands up, no doubt very stiff, before a new audience in Thessalonica. Can you imagine the temptation for a man as, as intelligent and theologically acute as Paul to just, well, it would be nice not to have another few months of broken bones and infected wounds. Why don't we just go a little bit gentle on one or two things? And it hasn't taken more than a few hours in Thessalonica for Paul to work out what things he can say that would particularly go down well in, in that audience. But that's not how Paul plays it. Because it's not his message to change. It's the gospel of God, verse 8. And he knows it is only the word of God that will be at work amongst those who believe, verse 13. It's only through the word of God, the gospel, that sinners like you and me can meet the real Jesus, the only one who's actually died for our sins, the Jesus of the Bible. Paul knows the word of Paul, the word of humans, saves nobody. It's only the word of God that can bring us to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. And so Paul will proclaim the word of God. Paul will proclaim the gospel, whether it's received gladly with joy or whether it gets him beaten and stoned half to death, as sometimes it did. Now, if you develop a pill that cures COVID-19 or cancer, it'd be nice if you could do that. If you do that, you don't change the formula because uh, the people who take the test batch say, yeah, it totally healed us, but we really didn't like the taste. Oh, that's awful. Let's just change it. <laughs> that's irrelevant, actually. This is the pill that saves you. The taste doesn't matter. Same goes for the gospel. No culture, no person has ever liked everything about swallowing the truth that Jesus had to die to save me from my sins. No culture, no individual has ever liked everything that Jesus says is involved in following him. But we don't get to change it. Now, as Christians in London, we are very unlikely to be ever beaten in the streets in our lifetime for speaking God's word. But there is the pressure for us to change, alter, water down the message. Because none of us, I mean, who here wants to be thought of as judgmental or bigoted? Who here would like to be thought of as a foolish and gullible, as someone who spends their life peddling irrational myths? Oh, me, please, can I? Nobody wants that. And so we find ourselves just going quiet on some things that the, the Bible says. We find ourselves saying nothing at all, rather than be laughed at or rejected. Now, of course, we must explain things carefully and in a way that's attractive. But we've got to remember, only the word of God has the power to save. And only the word of God can build young baby believers into mature followers of Jesus. So we've got to have the guts and the love to teach the Bible's truth, even when it's costly, even when it's uncomfortable. Only the word of God has the power to save. Okay, what about verses 15 and 16? Well, would you believe it, much as I'd like to go into those verses, we're out of time. Is <laughs> Having just said the temptation to miss things, I think that would be a mistake. I'm not going to spend long on them, but let me say this. Paul was not anti-Semitic. We read those verses and they make us wince a bit. Paul is a Jew writing to a church where there were many Jews 
holding up the pattern of the persecuted believers who are Jewish in Judea. Paul loved his people. Romans 9, he said, I would, I would go to hell to see them saved. But he recognized that the majority of the Jews of his day and the Jewish authorities had rejected the gospel and were seeking to stamp out the churches, at times with brutal persecution. And so he says this opposition is desperately serious. It's, you know, somebody comes up, if that Oxford vaccine really works and somebody firebombs the lab and destroys all their work, that's a wicked thing to do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He speaks strongly because the matter is important. He also speaks strongly, but he, is, he doesn't speak, he's not speaking from a position of power, remember. He is part of the tiny oppressed minority should read the words written by an oppressed minority differently from how we read the words of the powerful. Okay, pure motives, pure method, pure message. That's what Paul encourages all of us to, whether it's full-time or part-time that we're involved in it. And as I look around, I've got to say, at CCM, I see a whole heap of people who are serving just like that. And it's a huge encouragement to see so many people so committed to, to telling others about Jesus and to helping people grow mature as they follow Jesus. So keep going. Keep going. Give yourself to this work more and more. It is exhausting and it is worth it. All of us, you see, are stewards of the gospel. And all of us one day will stand before God and give an account for what we have done with the gospel message he has entrusted to us. We don't want to head for a day of shame and regret. Make the most of the opportunities you have to, to speak of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him, to encourage those who do know him to keep going. See, it doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, there's always somebody who is younger in the faith than you who you can encourage, or somebody who's a life stage behind you who you can help work out what it looks like in the next life stage to follow Jesus. Or if you think there really isn't, that's all right. There are lots of people who don't know Jesus at all. You can tell the gospel to. There's always stuff for us to do. And the question is, I guess, who am I seeking to serve? Who am I seeking to serve in all the busyness of London? It's good just to slow down and think, hang on a second. Of all the things calling my time, who am I seeking to serve with the gospel? Who am I seeking to teach the word of God to, to encourage, to follow Jesus? Well, how do you find the strength to do all of that? I think the same way Paul does, to be honest. Look at verse 2. We dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. How? With the help of our God. With the help of our God. Not even Paul could do it from his own reserves of strength and courage. So pray, just as Paul did. Ask God for the, for the courage and the love to make a difference in the lives of others. Ask him for help so that you'll live a life that's not small or selfish, that but counts and leaves a legacy and makes an eternal difference. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we long that we would know your smile upon us. We long that we would live lives that please you and lives that make a difference, that serve others and make an eternal difference. And so we pray that you would help us to give ourselves to this work, this glorious task of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and of encouraging others to follow him too.
Give us the strength, we pray, the love, the courage to do it. For Jesus' sake and for others' good. Amen.